it's very rare that I get to be on this side of it while the kids go marching on. So it's neat to see them and to wave goodbye. <laughs> no, I love being in there, but I also love and appreciate the opportunity to be here and to preach and to join with you in here as well. Hasn't it been a good morning so far? Hasn't it been just a, an incredible morning of worship? And we, we should look forward to being in a place like this, in a church where we can open up the Bible, where we can study it, where we can read from it. We should look forward to the opportunity without any fear of persecution or without any fear of military come marching in. We should look forward to the opportunity to sing songs of praise. And we should look forward to the opportunity to rejoice with other believers and to celebrate with those among us who are at very wonderful and unique times in their lives. Uh, I want to mention to you that there was a study done by a ministry called Campus Renewal in 2017. And it showed that between 60% and 80% of previously engaged Christian youth become disengaged with their faith as they transition into college. 60 to 80 percent. So to make this more real, approximately there are 500,000 students who graduate from youth groups each year. And of that 500,000, only 150,000 incoming freshmen stay engaged. This is a shocking statistic. It's a terrifying statistic. And what it does is it it shines a spotlight on something that's very, very, very wrong. And so, as I was preparing, and as I was looking at the Scriptures, and I was thinking about our students who are graduating out, these numbers couldn't help but bounce off the page at me. And I started thinking about, for our three young ladies who are there, as they look to the future and as they get ready to enter a very foreign world in some ways in the way they live now, it's foreign because they're not going to have the same family dynamic that they do now. They're going to be confronted with very convincing professors. The uh, statistic on that is it, in the country, uh, there are about 6% of people who declare to be atheists in our country. 6%. Seems low, doesn't it? Because they make the most noise. But 6% of our country's population claims to be atheists. But 25% of the professors in our universities claim to be atheists. And so the, the statistic, the, the stat grows in that place. They're going to be confronted with peers who are wanting them to do things, are going to be pushing them to boundaries and trying to get them to push the envelope of what's acceptable and what's not. But I do want to say that even though these are scary and terrifying statistics, our church is remarkably blessed, unbelievably blessed, that we have these three young ladies here with us. Now, I've been 
blessed. This class is a little bit significant to me. I came to Centercrest Baptist Church with this congregation in the summer of 2008 as the children's pastor. And these girls were just finishing up their first grade year. So in other words, I've been blessed to be the pastor for these young ladies at the beginning of their journey, and I am blessed now to be their pastor at the end of their journey. And so I've seen a lot of growing in their lives. I've seen, uh, I've seen a lot. I've been to kids' camp with these girls, and if you've never been to kids' camp, just understand Every child there is a completely different animal, and these three were no exception to that. But I could not be more proud. And as you prepare to enter this next chapter in your life, I want to take time to encourage you from the Scripture and to focus our attention on Christ and the purpose of your life in Christ as you go to college, as you prepare for the next journey you're about to take. So we're going to look into the Scriptures, and I'm going to ask you, if you will, to take your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to be, in 1 Peter, we're going to look, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 22, and we're going to read through to verse 12 of chapter 2. So it's a bit of a a lengthy passage. Oh, but it's worth it. And I'll I'll make this note very quickly that um, it's interesting. The the chapters and the verses that are in these Bibles are a wonderful benefit and a wonderful help. But they're not inspired and they're not inerrant. They were put in here after the words were written down. So... A lot of people focus on chapter 2 in these first 12 verses, and they miss that the end of chapter 1 is speaking to what Peter's talking about in chapter 2. So we're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Let's read it together. Uh, you read silently as I read aloud. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but out of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, and as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you again for your word and how it's living and how it's precious and how it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, God, that, that you would pierce through the heart and marrow of men and women in this room today. That, Father, your word would be proclaimed, that your spirit would pour out in this, your congregation. And that, Father, we would leave here knowing that we have worshipped you. And knowing that we have heard a word from your spirit. God, be with us. Help us to rejoice in who you are and in what you've done. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, I do ask these things and for his sake. Amen. All right, so the reason why we read the first few verses, or the last few verses, excuse me, of chapter 1, is because it highlights where Peter has come into where he's going. And he starts talking about the Word of God. He starts talking about how the Word of God drives you to an understanding of the good news. That this word of God has been preached to you, and it's because of this word of God that you can put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, that you can have a, a, a desire, a hunger, and a thirst for Christ, for his word. It's this word of God that has been poured out, that has been preached and that is why we can live. We know what God desires from us. We know what he wants us to abstain from. He, we know what he wants us to live according to. And it's because of the word of God we can live Christian lives. And, and I want to say uh, a note. This past January, I was uh, pleased to go with our college students and our seniors in high school to Atlanta. We went to the Passion Conference. Uh, and I've told this story before, uh, but I'll tell it again now. We had the opportunity to hear a lot of great speakers, a lot of very gifted uh, men and one woman uh, who got up and, and spoke to these college students. And they all did a very good job in some way, shape, form, or fashion. But there was one in particular, I won't 
name who the person was, who got up and they said some things that were maybe a little bit more emotion-driven than Scripture-driven. And that's a very easy thing to do. It's very easy to get wrapped up into the emotion of a moment and to say something that's emotion-driven instead of something that comes from the Scripture. And, and they said a couple of things that were like that. And I want you to know, and I want you to be proud of our seniors in high school. I want you to be proud of our college students. They came back to, we had a, a house that we were staying in so we could discuss all the things that had been spoken about and all the, the Bible studies we've been going through. And they, in their discernment, said, let's, let's unpack the Bible here and let's look at these things and see if, if what was being said is really from Scripture. And we walked through it and I was pleased to be there and I was able to see certainly some discernment on the part of, of uh, these young people. And so I want to encourage you that these young ladies who are going on, they have been taught the Word of God through families, through uh, hearing Tim preach, through the Awana ministry, through all the things of this church. They have been blessed to hear the Word of God being preached. And they are developing a sense of discernment. So it's in this discernment and it's in this knowledge of the Scriptures that they'll be going into college and they are aware of the things God wants for them. They're aware of the things that God has called them out of and the things He's calling them into. And so, it's a strange thing that we've gone from talking about the Word of God and how it's sufficient that, that Peter almost seems to take a left turn. And he starts going from talking about the Word of God and he starts talking about building. And, and building materials. And Peter's a bit interesting. When you read through an epistle of Paul, he's got it really well mapped out. You know uh, what he's going to say because he spells it out in the opening uh, address. And then he follows. There's a road map that's clear. Some of the other epistles, and Peter gets like this every once in a while, some of the other ones, you, you're, just, you're just along for the ride. And so here he's gone talking about the Word of God, and then it almost seems like he's shifted and he's talking about building materials. And I'll, I'll draw all those things out for you. In verse 4 he says, As you come to him, a living stone. Uh, verse 5, living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Verse 6, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. So these are building language. This is, this is language that's talking about building something up. So the question has to be asked, well, what kind of building, what kind of house is being constructed by this Word of God, by this life that is set apart? And he answers it in verse 5, and he says that it is a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And the believer is called out of darkness into the light of Christ. That's verse 9. For the purpose of being a temple of God. And so he's saying the believer, through the ministry of the Word of God, through the opportunity to hear Christ preached, to be able to hear these things, they are a temple unto Christ. And that's affirmed in Ephesians 2, 19-22. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul says that in Ephesians. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price So glorify God in your body. And as you, ladies, start the next chapter of your life, you need to recognize that you have been set apart. You are being built up by Christ to be a temple of God. And that kind of language is spoken about often within the church. And I'm sure you've heard it numerous times. But what does that mean? What does that look like? So that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on this morning. What does it mean to be a temple of Christ? And girls, what does it mean to be a temple of God as you start this next chapter of your journey? What does it mean to be that? Now, the temple goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The temple is known as this huge building. It's got a lot of things to it. One of the things to it that was very well known was the Ark of the Covenant. We have an Ark of the Covenant that was built at our church. It's not the real one. No one's going to die here this morning. But we do have an Ark of the Covenant that was built for us. And so I thought it'd be good to bring it up here so that you can see the illustration, so that you can see the visual. And here come our young men bringing it up here. You've got to be careful walking up on this stage. I don't know if you know this, but Miss Tammy broke her, broke her foot uh, preparing this Keebler tree for VBS this past week. So here we have a, a recreation of the Ark of the Covenant. And the temple, the Ark, served as an illustration in the Old Testament that we now see fully from the New Testament. I'm going to try and pull those things out for you. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple was a place where the Jews gathered together to offer sacrifices to God. And the whole city was built around the temple. And the temple was really divided into four sections. There was a fifth section that wasn't actually a part of uh, the temple, but it was called the Court of the Gentiles, and it surrounded Uh, the temple. But once you walked into the temple, there were four main parts. So you left from the court of Gentiles and you walked into what's known as the court of the women. And here everyone could come who was a Jew. Everyone could come in there, whether they were man, woman, child, they could all come into the court of the women. But beyond that, there was a second or a, a second court that was a part of it. It was called the court of the priests. Only the priests could go in there, and only they could work in there. And the the further in you got to the temple, the more holy the place became. So the court of uh, the women, the court of the priests, and then you walked into the structure itself. And inside the building, inside the structure itself, you had what was known as the holy place. In the holy place, there there was really, that started becoming very, very strict on who could walk into there. But there was even a fourth spot that was, that was 
pulled out from the holy place, and it was called the most holy place. And in the most holy place sat the Ark of the Covenant. In the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant, and it was um, it's described what it's supposed to be in Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. I'll read uh, a little bit of it. I won't read the whole account. But I'll read a little bit of Exodus 25 to you just so you can see that uh, you can catch the visual from Scripture as well as up here on the stage. It says, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. And then verse, I'll skip down to verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherub on its two ends. The cherub shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat. They shall, uh, shall the faces of the cherubim be. So that's the description from the Bible. This is kind of what it might have looked like in real life. And this was a very holy symbol. Uh, if you know stories from the Bible about the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to read, of the, uh, read some of them here in just a moment. The Jewish people, they held the Ark in very, very high esteem. They would take it with them before battles. And they recognized that that was the presence of God going before them to give them victory. There were a few times where they took it without, the God, without God telling them to take it into battle. But they were trying to force God's hand into their victory. It didn't work out so well for them. But the ark was golden. And here on the top, this is where you really need to focus on. This was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat's important because every single year they had a ritual called Yom Kippur and the mercy seat came in to a, it was a huge factor in it. Now the reason why they counted this as such a unique and a special thing within their temple is because of what King David uh, said in 1 Chronicles 28.2. He wanted to build the temple. It was only in a tabernacle at the time. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. Ultimately, though, David would not build that temple. His son Solomon would. But they recognized this ark, and specifically this mercy seat, as a unique uh, 
a unique symbol of the presence of God. That as David put it, it was the footstool of God. God was in his throne in heaven, and his presence uniquely touched the world here at the ark. And so to walk into the presence of the ark, you were walking into the presence of God, to a place that was uniquely set aside to represent his presence. And so, as I mentioned, Yom Kippur would come around, and that was a yearly uh, ritual where the high priest would put on ceremonial robes, and on those robes there would be bells, and there would be uh, a cord that he would tie around his waist, and it was the one time of the year where he could walk into the most holy place and where he could make atonement for the land of Israel for an entire year. And they would kill a lamb out in, uh, out in the courts, the outer courts, and he would carry in a bowl of the lamb's blood. And this is what he would do. He would walk in there, and he would dip his fingers into the bowl of blood, and he would spray it, scatter it on top of the mercy seat. Now, we recognize that this mercy seat is exactly what it says. It is representative of the mercy of God. Because of the blood of the Lamb being sprinkled on the mercy seat, the land of Israel received mercy from God for an entire year. And so they would walk in, they would sprinkle the blood, and then they would walk out. Very carefully, very cautiously. Now, the priest, in order to go into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, had to, I mean, there were a ton of rules and regulations he had to follow in order to make himself prepared for it. The cleaning, both inside and out, that he had to do to make himself fit to stand before the mercy seat of God is extensive. And so he would go in there with a lot of fear, because if he didn't do it right, then he would walk into the most holy place, and if he walked in there, even with the blood of the Lamb, petitioning God to give mercy to the land of Israel, if he walked in there in an unworthy manner, then he would drop dead right there. That's why he had the cords, or excuse me, the bells, all over his robes. That's why he had the cord around his waist. Because if he dropped dead right there in the Holy of Holies, they could take the other end of that cord, which was leading outside, and they could drag him from out of the Holy of Holies. And there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And so this was a serious thing. But I want to draw your attention back to what Peter said. He said that the temple of God is the Christian's life now. And so I want to help us turn a corner here to recognize that the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the temple, 
is pointing to what the Christian life should be. That's an interesting thing to wrap your mind around. How is that pointing to what a Christian life should be? Because the Christian life is supposed to be spent as a testimony to the God who saved them. The Christian life is to be spent giving worship and honor and glory to God. Because the Christian life is now the unique presence of God that touches the world. We no longer have the Ark of the Covenant. We no longer have the temple like they did in uh, the Old Testament. And so now that's not where the presence of God uniquely touches the world. Now it's the life of the believer. That's where the presence of God interacts and touches this world. So what do we learn from this and Yom Kippur about the life of a Christian? Well, there's a few things we can learn about God from this that the Christian life should put on display about who the Lord is. A couple of things that come to mind would be uh, omniscience, meaning God knows everything. If that priest walked in there and if he had any stain of sin remaining on him God would know it and he would drop dead God knows us he knows his people but not only does it show that it also shows mercy that we can go to God and we can ask him Lord, give me mercy, save me from my sins, save me from my iniquity, save me from the things that I have done against you. And we can, by the blood of Jesus, draw close to God and he will give us mercy based upon the blood of Christ. He will give us grace, he'll give us salvation. So that's certainly something that a life of a believer should stand for. The knowledge of God, the mercy of God, the salvation of God. But there's more. There's other stories in the Bible about the Ark of the Covenant. I'm, I'm going to read one to you that I, I love. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 5. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 7. Remember how I told you they would take the ark in front of their armies and that would be like them taking the presence of God into battle and they would have victory over their enemies? And there were a couple of times when the Jews tried to, without God's instruction, they tried to take the ark of the covenant and they tried to say, God, you come on with us and you just go, you go give us victory. This was one of those occasions where the Jews took the ark and they were going to fight the Philistines and because God had not instructed them to do that, when they took the ark in front of the Philistines into battle, they lost, they lost very handedly and the ark was taken from the Jewish people by the Philistines. That's where we pick up at 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says this, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now Dagon was a false god that they worshipped. 
They had their own little temple. They had their own little house of Dagon. And they put the Ark of the Covenant right next to Dagon in a temple for a false god. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, (laughs) behold, Dagon, which they had a big statue, Dagon, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. I love that story. Because you see, and this speaks so much to people who live in Alabama, I think, because we have two great gods in Alabama. Some of them say War Eagle. Some of them say Roll Tide. All right? And if you don't believe me, when the fall comes around, you just turn on the television, and you're going to see on a Saturday afternoon or Saturday night, you're going to see the worship of those gods like none other. All right? We have false gods even in our midst. Now, Let me say this. (laughs) Roll Tide. I am an Alabama fan, all right? There's nothing wrong with football in and of itself, but to take it to a place that we do here in Alabama is oftentimes a very idolatrous and evil and wicked place. These people, these Philistines, they had false gods. And they foolishly, took the presence of God, the real God, and set him right next to a false God that they preferred over the real deal. And so literally they put the presence of God into the house of idolatry. And I read to you what happened. Dagon fell face downward before the ark of the Lord. Even Dagon fell down to worship the real God. And then when the people wouldn't have that and they put him back on his threshold, the next day when they went in, Dagon fell face downward again, but this time his head and both of his hands were cut off. And that's significant because what God is showing us through the presence of that he had uniquely be a part of the world through the ark in that time. What he's showing us is that the presence of God cannot intermingle with any idolatrous relationship at all. And if you try to mingle it with idolatry, then what you're going to find is that your idolatry has no life. Think about it, Dagon's Dagon's head was cut off. No life in him. There is no life in in our idolatry. There is no life in false gods. There is no life in those things that we prefer over God. He cut its head off. No life in them. 
And not only is there no life in them, he cut their hands off. And what does that show us? Not only does he have no life, he has no power. He can do nothing for you. And I'll say this because it's easy in Alabama. There are reasons why, there are reasons why when Alabama or Auburn loses, people don't come to church in the morning. People don't, uh, people sulk for an entire week. There are reasons why people have difficulty praising and worshiping God after a loss. It's because they've put their their hope, they put their stock in what their team was going to do on that Saturday. And when, especially if they can't claim to be a believer, when God topples it to the ground and their head is removed, saying they have no life, when their hands are cut off, saying they have no power, we have the fallout of we have worshipped a false God. How can we ever go into the presence of the real one? If we are called to be a believer then we cannot, under any circumstance, put any false God, no idol above the Lord that we claim to represent. And girls, as you look to your college career, there's going to be a ton of things thrown at you. And people are going to say, all day and all night, that there are things more important to you than they've ever been in your life. Things like your grades are going to matter. You're never going to be hired for a job if you don't make the right grades. Academics, taking the right kind of classes, that matters. You've got to put that first. You've got to put that as your priority. Sports, I've already mentioned Alabama and Auburn. Sports, that's a big one here in the South. Put that first. That has to be the top priority. Relationships, you're going to encounter friends that you don't even know right now, and they're going to say, these are the most important things in your life. And there's a hundred other scenarios I could throw at you that is going to be put in your lap. And they're going to be convincing, and they're going to give all kinds of pressure and stress against you, and they're going to say that those things are more important than the Lord you claim to represent, and you have to recognize, no, I am a believer. I am where the presence of God uniquely meets this world, and all other things, though they can be important and though they can be fun and though they can be good, they have no life in them and they have no power over me. I am a servant of God and God alone. And those are the things you must make your stand upon. And if you want an example of that, the first year I went to college, I took a religion class. And the man who was teaching it got up there. This is day one of my college career. Day one. And the professor stood up there and he said, I used to be a Methodist preacher. And that's how he opened up. He said, he's introducing himself. I used to be a Methodist preacher and I am no longer a Methodist preacher. I am now a college professor because I realized one day that God was not real. I started telling my congregation that they, that they needed to grow up and stop believing in God. Then he said, if you look at the book of Job and you see all the things that he did, God is a real son of a gun. And he did not say gun. That's day one of my college experience. And 
I, my jaw has dropped, and I'm floored, and I'm looking around at all the rest of the students to think, where is the outrage over this? And do you know what the rest of the students did? Agreed. There, the likelihood of you encountering something like that might be small. But the probability of you encountering things like that eventually, maybe not quite that bold, maybe not quite that in your face, but the likelihood of hearing stuff like that or having peers try to say, no, 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 there is no God. It's, it's right to, to, to disagree with that. The probability of that is through the roof. And so, girls, I want you to know, and not just these ladies, I want our church to recognize you are claiming Christ. You are claiming to have the mercy of God put upon you. You are claiming to have the salvation of God put upon you. You are claiming to have the only living God. The only God, period, but certainly the only living God. He is omnipotent and He's all-powerful. He has the power, only He has the authority to lay hold of a person's life and control and to, to guide and to direct he is a conqueror who will not be felled by any other idolatry or any other false god. That's the God you claim to represent. And as you go into college, you've got to re recognize that your calling first is to a God of mercy and salvation. And it's to the only God who can grant life and has power. There's one... or. I've got two more, and I'll make them brief and quick. Two more stories jump out about the Ark of the Covenant as I was preparing for this lesson. The next one, actually the next two were in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Verses 1 through 7. Um. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Now let me set this up. That's a foul. You don't carry the ark of God on a new cart. God makes that clear in the Old Testament. He says, don't put it on a cart. It is to be carried by the priests using the poles. That's how the ark of God is transported. So that's a foul, what just went on. That's wrong. And Uzzah... And Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. So you've already got a foul. They're not transporting it the way.
they're supposed to. And the other foul is this. God said that no man should put his hand upon the ark. This isn't the real one, or else I wouldn't be doing that, obviously. No man shall put their hand upon the ark. And if they do, they shall die. The oxen stumble. The ark starts to fall. And Uzzah reaches up, put out his hand to the ark, and took hold of it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. What on earth can we learn about the Lord through this story? There's a lot we can learn from it. I'm going to tell you, when I, I we went to a, a conference when I first came to the church here, and Dr. R.C. Sproul, who is now passed, he was uh, the guest speaker at the conference, and he went over this passage of Scripture, and he asked all the group of us out there, he said, what was Uzzah's sin? Why did God strike him dead? What was the problem with what Uzzah did just to reach out and to touch the ark to steady it so that it wouldn't fall into the dirt and into the mud. All he was doing was trying to help. What was his sin? I loved R.C. Sproul's response. He said, his sin was the sin of assumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was cleaner than the mud and the dirt it was going to fall in. You see, Uzzah's hand that reached up to touch that ark, that was the hand of a sinner. That was the hand of a man who had done evils, who had done wrong. Now, Uzzah was a servant of David. Uzzah, he was trying to help. But Uzzah had the same curse upon him that all we have upon us, that we are sinners. And because of our sin, we do not deserve to be in the presence of God. We do, not deserve, we do not deserve the grace or the mercy of God. And Uzzah placed his hand upon the ark so that it wouldn't fall into the mud and the dirt because he thought his hand, though it was laden with the sinfulness of his existence, he thought that was cleaner than what it was going to fall into. What I think we can see from this story, to me, it highlights and helps us recognize we have a holy God. We have a God who is just, He is a judge, and He will have no stain of sin upon Him. He is unique. He is set apart. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is good. All of the things that Uzzah was not on his own is everything that God is. And so girls, as you go into your college campus, you go and you live lives that reflect we have a holy God and He's not someone that we take lightly. He's not someone that we just flippantly throw aside. He's not someone who can be stained with sin. 
He's not someone that we can improperly use for our own motivations or for our own desires. And the last, it's in the same chapter, the last thing that I want to point out about the ark. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. We have a God who is worth singing songs about. We have a great, a grand, a glorious, an amazing Lord who has provided mercy and salvation, who is holy and just, who is living and powerful and knows all things, and He will receive the worship He is due. And we have the benefit of being able to jump in to that. We have the opportunity to praise and worship this great, grand, and glorious, amazing God. And so as you get ready for the next chapter in your life, you have to say, my focus, my goal, my priority is not merely upon what my college experience is, but it's on this God whom I represent And as you set your gaze upon Christ, as you look to Him, the Scripture sets for us what or who you are, and the focus of your life's work is to be, and it's back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why have you been made a temple of God? Why have you been made a chosen race? Why have you been made a, holy pre a royal priesthood and a holy nation? Why have you been made those things? Because you can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. If you are a believer in this room, not just these girls, but you, everyone in here, if you are a believer in this room, you are called out as a temple of God. You are the unique place where the presence of God interacts with this world. We don't have the temple anymore. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. It's you that God has put this on. Not because you're so great, grand, and wonderful, but because His Son, who has saved you from your iniquities and the Spirit that indwells your life, He is grand and great. And if we are called to be that temple, that holy nation, that royal priesthood, then our life's ambition is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, 
I spoke this message to these young ladies who are starting a new chapter. But understand the same weight falls upon every person in this room who calls himself a believer. And so I've challenged them that as they go to college and if things are thrown into their their faces or they're hearing things or they're confronted with things that they never saw coming, I've encouraged them to remember who they represent and to make the excellencies of God known. But I will challenge you, church, what's going to happen to you when you go to work tomorrow? Or when you're with your friends or family who care nothing for God? Or who think only of the carnal and wrong things that was categorized by our life before Christ, but now we have no part of it? What will you do when those things are thrown in your face? When you are confronted with things that are against the Word of God and against the Christ who's called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light? What will you do when that happens? And girls, what will you do when you're faced with it at college? Let me pray for us. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we do praise you. And oh, how we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here in this place and to open up your word and to see your presence uniquely poured out into the lives of those who you called out as a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And Father, we recognize that those things are not just true of the Old Testament uh, saints, and they're not just true of Peter or Paul or the people who lived back when Christ was around. But Father, those things are true of us today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take seriously the calling that we have on our lives to proclaim the excellencies of our Lord who has called us out of darkness and into light proclaim the mercy and salvation of God, to proclaim His knowledge, to proclaim His holiness, His justice, to proclaim His power, to proclaim that He is alive and that He is active, to proclaim those things with our lips, to proclaim those things with our lives, no matter what obstacle or confrontation may come our way. Lord, I pray that you would be with these young ladies, that, Father, you would use their excitement, that you would use their nervousness, that you would use the place they are, to bring them closer to you. That's in your son's name, Jesus. We do ask these things for his sake. Amen.